Hello and welcome to Parkinson's Pathway Pals, Tuesdays with Teresa. I'm Teresa Jackson, your podcast host. Today my guest is Dr. Jackie Judd Flack. Dr. Flack graduated from West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine in 2007 after completing her undergraduate training at Bridgewater College in Virginia, majoring in biology with a minor in philosophy and religion. Dr. Flack completed her residency training at the Shenandoah Valley Family Practice Residency Program through Virginia Commonwealth University. With 14 years of experience, she specializes in family medicine and practices in Winchester, Virginia. Dr. Flack believes the person is more than the composition of their medical diagnosis. She believes the preventative medicine is the key to improving quality of life and care of her patients. She also believes that many diseases take a team of healthcare providers to provide expertise and input. Dr. Flack takes pleasure in being a patient advocate and working alongside with specialists to provide the best interdisciplinary team for patient care. In her spare time, she enjoys life with her four children and her amazing husband, who is also a family physician. Dr. Flack enjoys helping others, reading books, and striving toward trying to live a simplistic life filled with lifelong learning. Welcome, Dr. Jackie Judd Flack. Thank you for having me. This is quite a pleasure. Well, thank you, Dr. Flack. I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. And you know, I've talked to a number of people that have had Parkinson's. I've talked to movement disorder specialists. I've talked to a neurosurgeon, but I'm actually very excited about speaking with you today because really the entry of care, someone doesn't just automatically go to a movement disorder. The entry of care of, or of access really begins with primary care almost always. Oh, yeah. So um, being that you're a family physician and a holistic approach, I think is so important to the, to the um, overall care of patients. So I'm excited to get started. So let's go ahead and get started today. The first thing I'd like to know is I'm curious, in primary care, how often do you actually suspect, I guess it's two questions, how often do you sus suspect that you have someone that is possibly um, developing Parkinson's disease? And then how often do you refer them on once you have that? suspicion? Well, it's actually more common than you would think, or probably, you know, um, I would think at least once a month or a few times a month, I'll have somebody with a tremor that looks suspicious or even other findings or symptoms that are suspicious for it. Um, and I do refer those people out um, mainly because the diagnosis of, of Parkinson's can be not always cut and dry um, and it can often be missed. Um, and it's mainly clinical. So it can be confused with other rare neurological issues that we don't have a lot of experience with in the primary care realm. So often if someone has any red flags, I will refer those off to a neurologist. Mm -hmm. So how do you decide when someone comes in and they're, um, you know, they're exhibiting certain, whether it's behaviors or symptoms, whatever you want to call it, um, what, what is the trigger that makes you decide there's something else going on than B12 deficiency or whatever else might be occurring. Yeah, I think for me and, and most is that unilateral, not always unilateral, but often at least worse on one side than the other resting tremor. I mean, you read about the pill rolling tremor. Um, that's usually the, the, the first symptom, but there can also be other symptoms even years prior with autonomic dysfunction 
And if you start taking a history of people with this unilateral or worse than one side, particularly resting tremor, you'll hear those as well. So I think getting a good history is important, um, but anybody who has a resting tremor will be referred to a neurologist in my practice because that's usually pretty characteristic of it. Um, you'll also see other things, you know, with rigidity, whether it be lockdown rigidity or cogwheel rigidity, walking issues, gait issues, even handwriting issues. You'll notice people having problems speaking. I think the biggest thing is what they notice first and what other family members notice first um, are tremors. They'll see them because they're usually resting um, tremors. So that's probably the biggest um, red flag for me. Yeah, I know most people have tremors that have Parkinson's, but not all. Sometimes they present in different ways. And so I know you mentioned um, rigidity and difficulty walking, tremor. Um, what else should a primary care, or if anything, should a primary care physician look for? I know from speaking to a lot of different people that have Parkinson's, um, you know, they came in with a lot of different complaints before they ever managed to piece all those things together. So yeah. what should a physician look for? I think head bob too. Head bobbing can be um, pathological in a, a lot of different realms of medicine, um, whether it be cardiac issues or neurological issues. Um, I guess it's called a head bob or a chin bob or even like a feeling of internal tremor. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be hand tremor even, um, but I have seen people with that head bob and that to me um, is a reason to refer. Yeah, so that's I, another one that you may not necessarily realize. Think about, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I had the internal tremors before I had mm -hmm. the actual tremor and it's hard to describe and it's almost like you're nervous and your body mm -hmm. is moving, but people can't really even see it. So it's a little bit hard to yeah. explain. And I think at first, likely this diagnosis is, is very common. In fact, I was actually reading that it takes an average of two years before someone get, gets diagnosed with Parkinson's and that 50% are never diagnosed depending on where you are in the world. And that's just terrible. It I mean, is. you wouldn't think of, you know, uh, epilepsy or heart disease or anything like that never being diagnosed 50% of the time. So it's unfortunate yes. because it is treatable and those patients get a better quality of life when they are treated. Um, so I thought that was an interesting statistic and unfortunate. It is. It is an interesting and, un and unfortunate statistic. You know, the reason that I started this podcast and the reason that I wrote my book and the reason that I um, speak out in public forums is because when I was diagnosed after I left your office and went to the neurologist, um, I went to two neurologists before I ended up with my movement disorder specialist. And I didn't receive any education around how to treat, you know, how to um, manage my, di my disease. And so I felt like we have as a community, as a medical community, we have a lot of opportunity there. But I think in general, if you look at all the information and um, data that comes out of places like the Parkinson's Foundation, even centers of excellence for Parkinson's, mm -hmm. treatment of Parkinson's, have so much education still to do. We need to educate our nurses. We need to educate um, the emergency care physicians, um, the hospitals, all the people that, that comes into contact because what primarily happens is someone may go in for an appendicitis, a heart attack, um, a GI issue, any given number of things, not Parkinson's related, and a medication may be given 
that is contraindicated to Parkinson's. So we have a lot of education to do. Yes, yes I think so too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, speaking of that and, and having spoken to several other physicians, um, my understanding is there's really not a lot of education that is provided specific to that, to Parkinson's in mm -hmm. medical school. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, I guess confirm that, deny that, or um, yeah. dispel uh -huh. experiences it as you know it? I think it depends the level of training that you receive and also your interest that you try to seek out. I mean, I think at medical school, there's a framework there and there's always this saying in medical school and you don't realize it until you're out probably five, six years that half of what you learn in medical school will either be proven wrong or completely change. And I think that's the whole basis behind continuing medical education and board recertification, which is important that that's done. Um, because I have noticed that medicine has changed even in the 14 years that I've been practicing. So I think that um, if you're trying to go down a primary care realm, you will hit on some of these things. Um, but if you're going to maybe a surgery specialty, you know, your interest may not be geared towards that. So um, I think our training was good for primary care because most will become primary care physicians and that's why they're seeking that information but I can see where others wouldn't be so much. And in fact, even through CME and continuing learning, I have realized whether the research wasn't there or I didn't get it, that there are a lot of things about Parkinsonism I wasn't taught or I didn't realize um, or even forgot because the, the wealth of information is so much in medical school. And you know, you're constantly learning and, and learning from patients even, but the whole mm -hmm. basis behind um, excessive or not excessive, but I guess, extra exercise, not that we all don't need exercise, but Parkinson's patients will benefit if there's an additional amount of exercise, um, you know, one to two hours per day is even beneficial for their uh, disease um, prevention and progression. So that I wasn't really aware of the importance of it, um, as well as the importance of nutrition and the fact that some Parkinson's um, may even be thought to be environmentally related. Uh, and that's not something I even maybe realized was so important at the time. So I thought that was interesting to, to learn that after medical school. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and, you know, I guess dovetailing back on that, that's why I began this advocacy work is because that piece about education, I mean, excuse me, about um, exercise, even at the neurologist's office was not really, um, highlighted you know it was like if you want to exercise it would be helpful but not to the point of if you exercise to the point where you're sweaty you're breathless um and you're tired that may in fact slow the progression of your disease so that's a whole different piece of information than if you'd like to exercise you may feel better than mm -hmm. if you exercise hard with these you know these qualifications of sweaty breathless tired um, you may in fact slow the progression of your disease. So whole different, whole different thing, I think. And you know, the, the part about nutrition, while there's not an exact diet for Parkinson's, um, they do know that sugar is really not good. And when we think about disease in, in general, you know, obesity, cancer, heart disease, you know, sugar is just just bad in yeah large volumes. So, but I feel very fortunate, I have to say, because you are my primary care and, 
you know, you really picked up that I had something neurological going on right away. And there are people that take two, three, I've heard of seven years um, oh to be diagnosed. So for me, um, I was so, so fortunate. And that's why I'm asking you on today um, because you picked it up so quickly um, that I was able to get treatment and get moved into a motor uh, movement disorder specialist within six months. And my life is, is pretty good. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to talk a little bit about young onset Parkinson's disease. Typically that's 50 or below. My movement disorder specialist um, labeled me as young onset because he thinks I had had, you know, um, symptoms for quite some time. By the time someone gets to the physician that are showing some fairly significant cardinal signs of Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. They've lost probably 80% of their dopamine. And so um, for young onset though, do you see that in your practice? Um, if you saw it, what, what do you think now being armed with more information, what would you look for and what would you advise other, other primary care to look for? No, it's definitely not something you'll necessarily see because it's not as common. However, I think if you're always looking for the zebras they call in medicine. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but um, so you're looking for outliers. And so you can easily treat the things that come in every day, but if you get in the same pattern of never looking for the zebras, you'll never find them. Mm. And so I think if you always have a differential or an algorithm in your brain that if this, then that, then you know when it's gonna go off, you know, like there's the red flag, whether it's anything, um, you know, I have a threshold for what I feel confident in. And then when I over, when you cross over that threshold, then you're like, they need a specialist. I may not know what it is, but they need a specialist. And I think that doesn't show weakness. I think it shows that you're a patient advocate, that you want the best for them and that you will always have things that don't always follow the textbook, whether it's heart disease in women or, you know, carcinoid syndrome or, weird um, inborn errors in metabolism. There's all kinds of things that you don't see, but you always have to be looking for them. And so with people that are younger with Parkinson's, you wouldn't say, well, that's not possible because they don't fit the mold. Because um, typically it's an older man disorder, you know? And so this is not at all what it should be. So I think if you look for more of symptoms that are red flags, they always should be referred. And then I, and if you're always looking for it, whether you have somebody with you know, a frozen shoulder or somebody who has constipation and then they start having this other diagnosis that may fit. And eventually you'll get this symptomatology that's like, oh, that's that algorithm. You know, so you have these pathways. I think that eventually when you get enough of them, they either get referred or you're definite they have the diagnosis. And I think that, I mean, Parkinson's diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis. There's no, let's check this blood test and, oh yeah, you have it, you know, um, while you're alive, it's a clinical diagnosis. So I think, I mean, you can give medications and say, is it better? And most likely it will, it will get better with medicine. If it doesn't get better with medication, then it's not Parkinson's. So, um, which is weird. The whole thing can be very uncomfortable, especially in a primary care world to, to, to diagnose and to treat. So I think as long as you're always looking for red flags, and you don't get into a comfort zone and be almost overconfident in what's common is common because that's not always the case, then you'll find them. 
and you can't always go the other spectrum either and that everybody has something weird. I think you have to find a happy medium. And I think it comes with time, experience, help from other professionals, and, and even red flags from allied healthcare professionals. I mean, I don't know how many you know dentists have realized that someone has sleep apnea or how many other um, you know physical therapists find things that may be helpful with the diagnosis. So I think listening to others, keeping options open that you know, people can have things that are necessarily not common and knowing what to do with those is important. I think um, you mentioned, you know, just gaining experience as a mm -hmm. primary care physician, but I also heard you say it's not weakness. And I, I just want to say that out loud again. I totally agree with you. It is not weakness as a primary care physician to say, you know, this, this may be something else. I need an, another opinion here. I need a colleague to agree with me on this. And I think it actually is a sign of intelligence and confidence in your own ability to know mm -hmm. when you need to, you know, seek outside, um, outside of what you yourself, I suppose. So, um, so that happens. I think that happens with specialists too. I mean, I, I yeah. working or working in medical school, you'll see some neurologists that just aren't comfortable with this particular neurological problem. Right. Um, and they may even consult their own colleagues saying, well, they do more MS than I do. So let me send you here. So I think that everybody follows their own niche and they all learn differently and enjoy learning about different things. And they'll learn more about those. So I think that just because your primary care you know, doesn't mean that necessarily you have to treat everything um, because you won't even see that amongst multiple specialists. They're, you know, specialists right. of specialists as well. So I think referring yes. when necessary is important. Yeah, the, I think the key is knowing when to do that, right? Yeah. So I guess that sort of brings me to a segue. Um, we talked about, and in your bio, we talked about working as a team for interdisciplinary approach. So how do you work with, say, a neurologist or a movement disorder specialist in order for the patient to receive the very best care? How does that coordination occur? Well, typically, I mean, access to your primary care physician is usually easier. I mean, than, than someone, especially a movement disorder specialist that you may see not as frequent. Um, and typically, they're in your own community and they're easy to access. Um, so I think in terms of working with them, um, you know, we will treat, and particularly in my practice, we will treat the non-movement disorder problems. So the constipation, the anxiety, the depression, the insomnia, there's a slew of different, it's a multidisciplinary disease. I mean, it's a multi-system disease. Mm -hmm. um, so much autonomic dysfunction, it controls so much. So I think treating those are important. I think treating um, or actually recognizing when those medications could have side effects with other medications that you're treating um, to prevent, you know, serotonin syndrome. Um, and also I will adjust medication if someone's having side effects to their meds. So if they're having some movement disorder that I see in the practice, then perhaps we need to lower the medicine a little bit. And we're going to do that sooner than saying, oh, wait two months to go see your neurologist either I'll go ahead and reduce the medication because I feel comfortable um, or call the neurologist and say something needs to happen. Also side effects to the medications, um, whether you're using like a dopamine agonist and they're getting a little bit um, 
side effects are those. There's some compulsive disorders that can happen with some of those medications. So mm-hmm. picking up on that, maybe because you see the patient more often or their family member, you know, you see them as well. And they're like, yeah, they're doing this or that or the other. Um, I think being aware, because sometimes you may know the patient, not necessarily better, but you know, their personality and you know, that's not them, you know, kind of thing. If there's right. something that's off, um, either saying she can't tolerate this medication or adjusting meds or calling the neurologist for help um, and referring to whoever they need to go to. Because one, you know, typically like yourself, of course, this is wonderful. You definitely go above and beyond your own patient advocate. So, but they typically know themselves, you know, whether um, they know their body, they know what they need. They know what they need to, to live through this disease process, whether it's a counselor or a movement disorder specialist, or um, you know, physical therapy, anybody that they want on board, we're gonna get them on board. And, and I don't mind doing those referrals, making those calls, because that's part of our job. I think organizing um, the disease care and getting people the help that they need will help them ultimately. And I, I think there are, you know, it will help their overall quality of life if they have a um, multidisciplinary team to help support them. Overall, they'll feel better, they'll do better. Um, And I think the more help they can get the best for most people. Yeah, you know, I think a primary care that partners with their patients, um, you know, they, they know that patient well, they'll know that patient far more than a movement disorder specialist that you might see one, two or three times a year because you've built a relationship over years and years and years. So that, that relationship with your primary care is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just, I guess, to even dovetail that even further, when you were talking about constipation and some of the other things that um, happen with Parkinson's patients that are non-motor driven, and that, you know, they say, if you've seen one Parkinson's patient, you've seen one Parkinson's patient because they all have different non-motor and even motor to some extent symptoms. And, you know, probably beyond the patient themselves, they do know their body probably best, but beyond the patient themselves, the next step I would think would be um, the primary care. Mm -hmm. That brings me to another question, Um, especially since COVID has been here and we're seeing more telemed. I think that something that people may not realize, if you don't have a movement disorder specialist or even a neurologist in your community, and it's really difficult for some families to to, um, help patients get to where they need to go if it's one, two, three, four hours away. But the nice thing about the telemed, not only are the physicians, the primary care physicians working already with the movement disorder specialist, but it just opens up a whole new world of how medicine can be um, administered. And so I have tried to um, make sure when I speak publicly that people understand, you know, maybe you go to the movement disorder specialist once, but then they work with your primary care and you don't go every single time that maybe you normally would go if they were 20 minutes down the road. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could speak a little bit about your experience with that. Yeah, I think it just goes back to that whole realm of medicine changing. I mean, I think telemedicine, even for my practice, has helped improve quality of care and ease of access, even locally when the person lives right down the road, Um, because COVID has been scary and prevention Mm -hmm. is key to treatment of that as well for most things. So 
I, and I also think some people who live in rural communities um, may feel discouraged that they can't make it to a big university center and they may not get the care that they need. So a lot of neurologists, even in rural practice, um, are doing telemed for neurology. So, and you can do a lot of diagnosis, especially for this type of clinical diagnosis through telemed, whether you, know, you have them do a writing activity or rapidly alternating movements. You'll see bradykinesia or slow movement, smaller handwriting, um, softer voice. I mean, even gait, you could have someone walk. I mean, there's so much you can do that at the bedside or over the internet. Um, that people would have access to. So I think that brings a good point. I'm glad that you're spreading awareness for that because some people do feel discouraged, even in my practice now, you know, the older community that they may not have transportation or their family members work and they're wondering how they're gonna get to a big city that they, one, may not drive or two, don't know how to, to navigate in. So I think that's good to bring awareness that not everyone knows that telemed is an option and it is even an option among specialists. So I think that's commendable that, and it helps, it helps them get the care they need. Yeah. 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 So we've talked a lot about awareness um, and, and we're talking about awareness. So that segues me to the next question. You know, we've, and we also talked about exercise and disease management. I have started this podcast. I've written a book and I'm speaking out publicly every opportunity that I, I get as an advocate. And I am an aware and care ambassador for the Parkinson's foundation, but I just, from a physician standpoint, I'm wondering what input you can share with us on how do we need to raise awareness about uh, Parkinson's disease, that it is growing for the young onset, although it's much, much smaller than the, the typical, it is growing exponentially, unfortunately. And so how do we raise awareness around the disease itself, around the need for exercise and around disease management? What are your ideas around that? So I think it's key um, to prevention. And I think realizing that it's a public health problem um, because there are a lot of things that people may not realize that they should make sure that they're not becoming exposed to. So I, you know, there's a lot of statistics about men because they're usually in chemical work or painting or farming, but we're living in rural communities and there are people who have wells and there are people who are around pesticides and um, so it's not necessarily that particular diagnosis. And I think we're seeing it earlier on, hopefully maybe perhaps we're diagnosing it earlier, even though the statistics say that maybe we're not, but um, maybe some actually are. And we're thinking and realizing that there's a public health problem. I think starting to limit some exposures to things, getting your well tested, realizing that exercise is important um, for everybody and especially people with, with Parkinson's, but for everybody. Um, eating a healthy diet. And I think people who come out who have the disease, um, making a statement about exercise, about diet means more because I think after a while, being a physician, you get tuned out, you know, like, oh, we say, don't smoke, exercise, eat well, you know, and it feels like, well, why do we come here for this? We already knew that. <laughs> and it doesn't mean they're going to do it, you know, otherwise they would stay home and do it. Right. And so I think that somebody who has the disease hits closer to home, you know, especially when they're an advocate for themselves. And I think that's great. And I think it's gonna mean more to other people when we have awareness, when it's so personal to someone. I think personal stories are always touching to people, especially when they have the disease themselves. 
and they can learn a lot from you. So I think that's great. Like encouraging other people to come out with their own testimonies, what happened to them, how they got diagnosed or misdiagnosed mm-hmm. also brings awareness to clinicians that we need to keep an eye open for this. And you learn from mistakes and you learn from others. So I think that's important. I think all those things are very important. There's one thing that I think, um, and this is just anecdotally, I don't even know that there's any um, literature around this, but it's our level of stress. When I talk to people, every single person I talk to, their physicians, their attorneys, Mm -hmm. their executives, and their Mm -hmm. people that have been in high stress positions. And while that is not, I'm not offering any medical advice or stating that that's, Mm -hmm. but I my personal belief and anecdotally is that as a, you know, culturally, we just don't manage stress very well. It's almost, um, it's almost awarded, a rewarded, you know, the harder you work, the more frazzled you are. She's getting, when we need to be thinking about managing our stress before. I I could agree more. I, I mean, there's probably no particular research that I could state there, but I don't think it takes a research paper or project or, you know, randomized control trial that stress is not good for your body in terms of all the cortisone levels it raises. And um, I always tell my patients, I don't think our body was meant to deal with this much stress. I don't think we were geared that way. I think that's why we have a lot of mental health problems. Our mind cannot continue to put out the serotonin it needs to deal with daily activities and daily life. So I think we need to kind of step back, not necessarily from the American dream, but from the reality that a lot of this doesn't matter in terms of what we're here for. And we need to focus on our health because if we don't have our health, we have nothing else. That's right. Um, And I think our interactions with one another and, you know, we're here to help others. That's my own personal belief. And, you know, I guess just being thankful for what you have. And like I said, I try to strive more towards a simplified life because I think that's what matters most. And um, at the end of the day, you know, what matters most is helping one another grow, live, learn, and nothing else matters. So I think dealing with stress and realizing that a lot of this stuff doesn't need to be as weighted as we make it. I think that I that's, I think that's really good advice. Um, so we're, we're nearing the end of our time today. And I just want to know if there's anything else that you would like to share personally um, that maybe we've missed that our list, our listeners would benefit from. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience? No, I think we hit a lot on what is important for the primary care realm and when to refer um, and feeling comfortable referring and not, you know, feeling uncomfortable with talking with your neurologist. I never had a neurologist say, why did you call me about that patient? Like, you should have done that yourself. Like, there's never a time where I've ever reached out to a specialist and they were negative about it. Um, I think they appreciate, you know, being a patient advocate for the help, for your input on, you know, so-and-so never acts like this. They were acting really strange today in the office. So I think just being open to communication um, and being a patient advocate is important. And I think from a primary care, especially standpoint, um, you know, that's what we're here for. We're here to help people and, and the specialists are as well. So I think just keeping communication open uh, and using all your allied health professionals to benefit you because that's mm-hmm. what they're there for as well. And creating a team that goes up to bat for your patient to keep them living longer and happier. 
healthier. Yeah, so. a holistic approach. Well, yeah. I want to thank you for your time today and for your um, knowledge that you have so freely given to us. I think the ta takeaways today are we need to continue to raise awareness. Um, we need to make sure that we're partnering not only the patient with the, uh, our primary care, but the primary care with the specialist. And um, for any specialist, or excuse me, for any primary care that may be listening, or for any person that is suspected that they are um, having an issue, look for the zebra. I love that. Look for the zebra. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Good to see you.